I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Matt Bernico. And I'm your other co-host, Dean Detloff. Dean, I was just thinking about how we're an international podcast now. We're, That's right. We're crossing the dateline, the oceans between us. And that's pretty cool. It is pretty cool. Two sides of the Atlantic are coming together. <laughs> yeah, it's good. Um, man, it feels great to be not in the United States, though. I do love that deeply. <laughs> yeah, what's uh, what's the latest thing that you've appreciated being outside the belly of the beast? I mean, it, it, maybe in a different part of the beast, just not the belly. Yeah, yeah, a, a, a far more minor part of the beast. Um, you know what I like a lot about being in this part of the beast is... Uh, Whenever you go to get coffee here, it's never just coffee. It's always like a latte or something. And I appreciate that, that <laughs> I'm always going to get a fancy coffee um, and almost rarely get regular coffee. I, I, I think that's great. A great cultural shift that uh, the United States is missing out on with all of their um, with all of their just regular black coffee. <laughs> it is still very funny to me, having been a barista for a long time, that an Americano is just an espresso with more water on it. Yeah, for sure. Okay, I feel I've I like coffee a lot, um, and I feel maybe a little bit snooty about it even. But I just learned what a flat white is the other day, and it <laughs> rules. It's like my it's my new favorite drink. I think it's a it's a great one. Um, I don't know if they even have those in the United States, but uh, if they do, next time you go to the coffee shop, try to get one and see what it's like. It's a uh, just a lot of great foamy milk. What, just, what else uh, could you it's want? It's a little latte. Coffee? Yeah, it's a it's a latte but with more foam, and that's what I want. Uh, yeah, well, I'm glad that you're reaping all the benefits of uh, whatever Scotland has to offer, including buying coffees that technically you could buy in North America. But I, I'm glad to hear that the vibe is different, at least. It's definitely different. I could have bought it in North America. That's true. <laughs> but but I'm really enjoying it here is what I'm trying to say. Right, right. Because somebody who sounds like Shrek sold it to you. I wouldn't say that to anyone's <laughs> face. But yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah uh well um i won't say it when i come to visit one day either i'll i'll try to remember that <laughs> we're not talking though about matt's coffee habits in scotland uh this time we we've still been trying to put our lives back together since matt's big move and i was sick for a while and uh so we've been struggling to start out what on earth to do we did figure out something to do and we're going to talk about it in the latter half of the episode but to eat up time 
and save ourselves from having to plan too much. Okay, wait, no, 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 no. You cannot start the podcast off saying we're going to eat up time. I think I can. I think I did. I think I'm doing it right now by extending this long response to you about how I did do it, and I'm not going to regret it, and we're not going to re-record it. We are eating up time uh, in the first half of this episode by doing some uh, some Reddit Reddit goofs. I almost said gloofs. Um, I'm eating up more time by just identifying that mistake, and uh, that's, what they, that's what they call them on this side of the on this side of the pond, though. They're, they're gloofs <laughs> right. here, and they're goofs there. That's right, they're gloofs over there. Uh, and Matt, I do have a couple good ones from the Presbyterian subreddit, and I know that this is a time honored sort of uh, time waster on the Magnificast, but it's been beneficial to let the Presbyterian Reddit uh, subreddit kind of go fallow because there are some good healthy crops now after waiting uh, a month or so. And the first one here <laughs> is called a uh, hypnotherapy. And it oh. says is hypnotherapy for quitting smoking a sin. I've searched the scriptures and replacing the lies of my subconscious with truth seems to be a good thing for the mind. So Matt, having searched the scriptures, I know that I didn't give you a lot of prep time here, but uh, what do you think about hypnotherapy for quitting smoking? Is that a sin uh, in the Presbyterian church? As far as you can tell, having heard like maybe seven or eight sermons by now, <laughs> you know, it's so weird that I haven't heard a, I haven't heard a sermon on hypnotherapy yet. I think that is pretty shocking to me. Um, here's a serious answer to this question. There's this book that I read, um, a few years ago. It's called Abducted, How People Come to Believe They're Kidnapped by Aliens by <laughs> Susan A. Clancy, who is uh, a really, um, uh, I don't know, like social psychologist, a very smart person for sure. She wrote this book. Um, anyways, the thing that's really interesting about this book is that, uh, a thing that people do to recover their, like, lost alien abduction memories is hypnotherapy. And uh, I think what I learned in this book was, I think, how fragile our brains are and our memories are, especially when <laughs> someone's in there poking around. And it's really easy for somebody to, uh, you know, just suggest something to you that you wouldn't you wouldn't normally uh, believe or think or, you know, didn't happen to you. So all I'm trying to say here is uh, not don't do it. Just smoke. It's probably better for you. <laughs> it's probably better than someone poking around in your brain and uh, and hypnotizing you. I think that's probably OK. I don't know. Maybe I feel vape. like you're try, try vaping. You're leaving a great opportunity on the table, though, which is you could not only quit smoking, but also come up with an incredibly elaborate and cool backstory for yourself. And it could be a pretty exciting way to really get you on the holy path. Okay, so you would hypnotize somebody primarily to, to get them to stop smoking, but also you would give them a backstory on why they're such a great Christian. Yeah, like it's kind of like a men in black thing. Like Will Smith there, he gives you the neuralizer and then you didn't see an alien, you saw swamp gas or whatever. But in this case, it's like, no, no, you're you're not a smoker. You don't smoke. You hate smoking. Smoking's the worst. And also you're like uh, really good at um, singing a handful of particular hymns or something. I feel like you could just plant that sort of seed and uh, all of a sudden you're you're the worship leader now. Oh, man. Um, that seems dangerous, but yeah, okay. I, that's fine. Um, well, something to ask your pastor about. That's what I'd say. Some, well, I'll bring it. I'll bring it to her and see what she says about that. Is <laughs> can I be hypnotized? Is it a sin? I'm really worried about it. Uh, but Wait, okay. I... <laughs> it never. It never occurred to me. What if you? All right, you're new at this Presbyterian church. You're new in this country. Um, uh-huh. What if you one day uh, just invited your pastor to come on the show, and we could just read that pastor a handful of questions from the Presbyterian subreddit, and really just kind of get the answers straight from the horse's mouth, as it were. 
That is such a funny idea. Um, I've actually not had very many conversations with the minister at this church. And as far as she knows, I'm a normal person. I think it would be extremely funny <laughs> to <laughs> sort of just spring all this extremely weird stuff on her. <laughs> great. <laughs> All right. Well, that's going to be, uh, I think, a great Magnificast challenge for the next year or so to see uh, see when we can get Matt's great pastor to come on the show and uh, <laughs> and reveal that, in but fact, with, you are not a normal person. <laughs> with no with no prior warning. She can't know anything about <laughs> it. Uh, I have a podcast, I'll say. And and then and then she'll be on it and uh, it'll get really wacky and wild and we'll ask her right questions. <laughs> the between two ferns of Christianity. here. <laughs> <laughs> that's right that's what oh man and that's and that's why young people are leaving the church um here's a question <laughs> for you dean what's the catholic stance slash doctrine on cryptids examples being skinwalkers vampires and other supernatural entities so uh this person they tried looking this up but they can't find an answer on this which is surprising hmm. um but they write this the catholic faith acknowledges supernatural phenomena on earth like souls in purgatory reaching out to church militant here on earth. I would say that that's not a supernatural phenomenon. That's just natural phenomenon. That's just cosmology. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Anyways, um, so uh, the Catholic Church, they believe in uh, souls in purgatory reaching out to the church on earth, as well as forbidding communion with the dead in an attempt to bridge the two worlds, and even acknowledges that demons can cross over. If someone foolishly tries to communicate with the spirit world, but what about seemingly physical creatures with supernatural mm. abilities, such as shadow creatures, wendigos, bedlams, vampires, etc.? Does anyone have some information on our faith stance on these creatures and our policies on if such a being is encountered? <laughs> so what do you think, Dean? Uh, first of all, do Catholics believe in, in shadow creatures, wendigos, bedlams, vampires, etc.? Um, and what should Catholics do? What, what's, I'm sorry, no, that's not even the right the right way to phrase this. What's the Catholic policy if one's encountered? Man, I do want a great Catholic policy book uh, on this in particular, so I'm going to go ahead and try to find that later. Uh, but I think the short answer is, of course, we believe in them uh, because Catholics are great at inventing all kinds of incredible myths and so on. Um, I'm thinking also about uh, a really great book that I'm going to look up right now by this historian named Carlo Ginsberg, um, who is a really interesting guy. Um, what is the name of this book? Something about night. Hang on. I'm eating up more time by finding it right now. Here it is. Uh, the Night Battles, Witchcraft and Agrarian Cults in the 16th and 17th Centuries. Uh, this guy, Carlo Ginsberg, he's an Italian historian. He wrote a bunch of cool books. He wrote this great book called The Cheese and the Worms, by the way, which is like the coolest her oh, heresy guy. trial. Yes. Um, very cool. So this book, The Night Battles, is all about these um, peasants in Europe who uh, they were like interrogated by the Roman Inquisition and they believed. All right, here's the Wikipedia. Uh, they believed that they had a nocturnal visionary journey during which they thought their spirits traveled out of their bodies and into the countryside where they would do battle with malevolent witches who threatened the local crops. Um, and there's a number of other things that Ginsburg looks up, including a bunch of stuff about werewolves and uh, witches fighting werewolves, just a lot of a lot of things going on in medieval Catholicism. And I think that's one of our great gifts to uh, to the world is that Catholics do, you know, maybe we don't have a form formal policy book, although I bet there is one floating around in the Vatican somewhere. But I think at the very least we can say, of course, we believe in this stuff. We've been believing it for centuries. 
That makes sense. I mean, okay, stuff like a werewolf, that makes sense. Of course, of course, Catholics believe in werewolves. Of course, they believe in vampires. I mean, vampires are Catholics, if you think about it. Right. Um, that, all, that all attracts for me. But here's the thing that I think is a little bit complicated, is that, like, a Wendigo, for example, is, you know, that's an indigenous sort of creature, a creature from, from ind- indigenous lore. Uh, what's the crossover? What's the policy for crossover? Or like, or or even like, uh, to to take the the colonizer colonized kind of dynamic out of it for a second. Like, how about mummies? Like, can Catholics do do Catholics believe in mummies? <laughs> I mean, I've been to the museum. I definitely, I definitely believe in mummies. I've seen one before. Okay, uh, no, fair. <laughs> that's true. But I yes, um, a good question. All right, I have a friend from Ireland who told me that. Uh, his mom has seen a banshee in her backyard. And I feel like mm. that is uh, a great way to sort of parse out some of the, the gray area here because banshees, I'm sure, are from like pre-Catholic Ireland. And nevertheless, all these uh, Catholic Irish people are like, yeah, the banshees, they're out there. And I don't see why we can't believe in basically all the other weird stuff running around in the rest of the world. Okay, that's fine. So we, that's part one of the question answered. But Dean... <laughs> you've, you've neglected to answer the second part that I'm more interested in here. What's the policy when you encounter one as a Catholic? Right. Oh, yeah. The uh, from from the Codex Spookix or whatever it would be in Latin. Um, let's see. The policy, I think, varies from creature to creature. I mean, in, in the case of a vampire, I don't know. The policy seems to be pretty clear. You hold up a crucifix and hope for the best. I think with uh, with a handful of other creatures, um, you know, like with a banshee, for example, I feel like the policies just kind of live and let live. Like, don't go, don't go check out what they're doing. Hope they don't check out what you're doing and just kind of let them wander around the world making all the noise they need to make. Uh, you know, there does need to be some great, like, um, some great policy book on it. I'm going to look that up after this recording. There's got to be a great cryptid policy book for, for Christians uh, who are interested, but um, I think it's going to have to be a case-by-case thing. That's true. Isn't there like a, isn't there some kind of like statement from bishops on, um, on aliens too? So, I mean, there's oh, got to yeah. be one for a werewolf. Yeah. The Vatican has a whole, a whole program for what we'll do in the event of, uh, alien contact and so on. So yeah, I'm sure in like, in, in some office in like an old catacomb at the bottom of, uh, a, a cathedral in the Vatican, there's like one guy whose whole job is to be like, what do we do if we see a werewolf? And I'm going to find out who that guy is for sure. Amazing. Yeah. Well, you have to report back, um, a really important thing to get to the bottom of, I think. All right, uh, I've got one other Presbyterian question for you here, Matt, and the title of this is Recorded Music. And the person says, Hi, everyone. I'm wondering what your church does when the piano player or praise team is unavailable for church on Sunday mornings. Are there recorded songs available for use that the congregation could sing along to? We're a small church in a small community, so when our music coordinator goes on vacation, we're stuck. So, Matt, uh, let's let's see if you had to come up with um, some recorded music, a playlist for your Sunday service, uh, what would be your, your top tracks for really getting you into the, the spirit here? Oh no, I'm not good at that at all. Um, it'd just be <laughs> some me without you songs or something. We could all kind of sit and listen to <laughs> right. Just yeah. Then, and just like vibe. I think um, that sounds pretty Presbyterian. You know, uh, at the Presbyterian church I'm going to, there's this guy that plays the organ, and he's really phenomenal. Like, you know, you go to church sometimes, and and the people who are perf- 
playing music and worship are are good or serviceable, but this guy is like extremely good at organ. And uh, every time he plays something, it kind of sounds like, uh, I don't know, like video game music a little bit. Like I don't <laughs> know, if, if I was playing Zelda and the song was on, I would not be phased whatsoever. So maybe just some video game tracks, just like some great video game tracks you can worship and relax to. There you go. Just like put on some Castlevania. It sounds like you're already in a church. You're good to go. <laughs> I think that would be great. And this is also why <laughs> young people are leaving the church. There's not enough <laughs> Castlevania music going on. <laughs> uh you're gonna get a strongly worded letter we're gonna get a strongly worded letter from the uh the union of church organists in scotland which i'm sure exists to be like you're not allowed to suggest this in the podcast <laughs> i'm so sorry um yeah that uh is probably true okay here's another question for you this is kind of the other the other side of the question i did just ask so that was like the you know the the physical creatures, right? Like what's, what's the deal with those, the werewolves, the mummies and so on. Mm-hmm. But here's, here's the other end. Um, this, is, this is not from the Catholicism Reddit, but this is the Catholic Reddit. So it's a little bit wilder. Um, <laughs> and the post is titled serious spiritual creatures. I'm from a place <laughs> where old people still believe in fairies, ghosts and other creatures they've seen in the woods at night. An old priest who lived there said that he believes there's more than devils, demons and angels. He explained like this. You see that huge oak, that pine tree, the bush to the strain of grass and moss, from grain of sand to mountain, from terror to the ocean, hundreds of shapes and sizes. Imagine how many millions of spiritual creatures there are. I like what you said, but I don't know what the church thinks about that. So, Dean, mm. um, so there are cryptids. There's the Bigfoot, and, he, and I'm sure he's great. And you could invite the Bigfoot to mass, and it would be great. But what about all the other spiritual creatures that maybe lack uh, corporality, um, but they're still out there? What what's mm-hmm. the church thing about those guys? Right. That's a great question. Um, if I had to guess, I'd say the church probably says that they are either angels or demons. Uh, but I think that, you know, the key is to find the priests who tell you that maybe there's like a million things in between. I think uh, that guy is part of the church and it sounds like he's got some interesting ideas. I'd like to hear more of those. Um, let's get him on the podcast alongside your Presbyterian pastor. And we'll just kind of <laughs> see see what both of them have to say about a question like this. No joke, if we shifted the podcast from talking about leftist politics to, like, I don't know, the kind of strange and off-color beliefs of priests about (laughs) spiritual creatures, I would kind of be happy about that for a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, that wouldn't be so bad. Uh, Well, um, (laughs) listeners, either uh, beware or get excited, because uh, Matt and I are running on fumes here, and it is obviously... Uh, starting to affect the oxygen going to our brain, because here we are uh, thinking about changing our podcast to being about Catholic cryptid hunters um, and Presbyterians who think about hypnotherapy, and I feel like it is pretty dangerous ground. There's absolutely nobody listening to this podcast right now that thinks that would be a bad idea. I mean, if we did like (laughs) 20 episodes that were just about Catholic cryptids, I feel like unanimously people will be okay with that <laughs> all right if our patreon goes up to i don't even know what we'll decide the number later but then uh if it goes up to that amount of money then we will have to create a uh, a handbook for christian engagement with cryptids i feel um that seems very cool to me <laughs> the dungeon master's handbook to the Catholic church <laughs> yeah. we're gonna we're getting there exactly yeah uh i'll bring it to pope francis we'll get his imprimatur on it we'll see how it goes <laughs> pope francis is doing like really serious work about you know theologizing about climate change and stuff but uh yeah i guess this book about about 
uh, ghosts and the uh, the various other spiritual entities. It needs it needs to be on the shelf too. I'm sure he's into it. He he uh, he added to the mass that wild prayer of uh, Saint Michael at the end that talks oh, about the true. devil running around. And uh, I don't know. I feel like if you're ever going to get a pope to talk about it, he's probably the one. Sure. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And I feel like there's, you know, since this is not, uh, this isn't like 1100, uh, there's a lot less at stake for kind of making statements <laughs> about that too. Like no one's going to kill you for it or something. That's uh, right. Remains to be seen, I guess, but still. <laughs> All right, let's take a hard pivot towards something else. Um, these Reddit questions are fun and they get my brain going. And at least I'm like, uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm loving it. It's great so far. But let's take another turn and talk a little bit about some... Um, some kind of recent news hooks uh, about current some current events in like sort of the Christian left world, uh, but also maybe like a, a more expansive conversation about like the connection between direct action, social movements, Christianity, all these kinds of things floating around together. So earlier this month, you guys might have heard about it happening out there in the world. And if you haven't, I'm going to tell you about it right now. Uh, Dutch military police arrested 25 people nonviolently protesting against nuclear weapons and carbon dioxide emissions at Vocal Air Base that's about 80 miles south of Amsterdam on August 8th and 9th. Um, I I mentioned at the top of this episode that we're an international podcast, and here we are covering what's happening at the the Netherlands. On the continent. Yeah, that's right. Uh, In the EU. Uh, But anyways, just a few days later... Uh, after this happened on August 11th, uh, it was the two-year mark since Jessica Resnicek, a water defender, has been incarcerated for direct action against the Dakota Access Pipeline in Iowa. These two things aren't really related in, I don't know, a strong ideological sense, but they are related in that they are both examples of Christians carrying out nonviolent direct action um, against, I don't know, the powers that be. <laughs> in Jessica Resnicek's case, it's uh, against a corporation uh, that is... Um, you know, pumping fossil fuels into the market and uh, not only hurting the um, the local environment of Iowa and the Midwest, but also, you know, um, contributing to carbon emissions all over. The and uh, part of a uh, settler colonial project and, and so on. Oh, totally. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a great, a great thing to add. Um, in the other case, too, it's um, it's not just climate change there. It is carbon dioxide emissions, which, you know, military is always a a big uh, producer of, but also against nuclear weapons, um, which is another big uh, focus, I think, for Christians, especially Christians in this particular, like, activist niche. Um, Nonviolent direct action like these has been, I think, a pretty important tactic and spiritual practice, maybe. (laughs) You might call it for Christians on the left in the global north, I think, specifically, um, you see lots of actions like these in uh, the United States, but also in continental Europe and elsewhere. And we've never really just like taken a beat to talk about it on the podcast. And I think we're going to do that right now since we kind of have some space and, um, you know, the, the occasion has risen though that we can do it. So uh, in this episode, uh, now that we're done talking about cryptids, we're going to talk about uh, the tradition of nonviolent direct action within Christianity. I want to maybe pull out a few examples, um, not like too much in depth, but just a few, and then talk about maybe where the impulse comes from and like what it requires to be a tactic and, and how it kind of fits into the conversation of, of being a Christian and sort of expressing yourself politically. Uh, Dean, I don't know, where should we start? We, we can talk about the, the Berrigans in a minute, since that's probably the most like um, readily 
available like mental <laughs> example i think of people doing this type, type of thing um but uh yeah I, I just mentioned the the dutch military arrest of the uh, anti-nuclear protesters maybe uh do you want to read this piece here and, and we can kind of talk about what it means yeah for sure um and uh maybe it's good too to set up by way of context that like Something that is interesting to talk about here that maybe doesn't get talked about in general is uh, the kind of wide variety of responses that go under the title of nonviolent responses, um, even disagreements among nonviolent activists about all that, uh, which we'll talk about more when we talk about the Berrigans in a second. Um, but I think it is really helpful to sort of start with a, a tangible example and one that is recent and not like, you know, something that happened 60 years ago or something like that. Um, yeah. the, the Catholic worker and more broadly Christian kind of action, uh, I think has really delivered this model in the 20th and 21st centuries in a way that's really unique. Um, namely the model of like occupying, uh, sites that are sort of like places where violence is produced or like reproduced and occupying those sites in a way that is kind of like recognizably a sort of spectacular project like it's setting up a scene and trying to provoke people to think about it so something that you know like we said happened a lot in the 20th century but it's still happening right now and uh, happened very recently so here's the news hook um, about this example in the netherlands uh this comes from a sojourners article that is pretty short so worth reading in in total i guess it's called dutch military arrest 25 nonviolent anti-nuke protesters and uh, Matt read some of the details, but I want to read a little bit from uh, a person who was part of it. Um, it says, Eric Martin, an author and protester from California, arrested on August 8th, told Sojourners in an email that the protesters were pilgrims from many nations meeting at Volkel to uphold the laws of international treaties and the call of the prophets. And uh, Eric Martin goes on to say, we came armed with prayer and song, bread and Bibles, the military runway transfigured into an altar, signs of peace disrupting the nuclear nest. We hoped to enflesh in our worship a no to the death of children in creation, a yes to community, and the living God of love. And the article goes on to say, Coordinated by the Amsterdam Catholic Worker Community, the multi-day peace camp at the airbase ran from August 4th to 10th, which is pretty wild, and focused on climate and a future without nuclear weapons, and on Monday, about 60 activists demonstrated in front of the airbase's entrance. The protest lasted 78 minutes to symbolize the 78th anniversary of the U.S. dropping nuclear bombs on the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, so a lot going on here, a lot to parse out. It's obviously a pretty big action, very uh, coordinated and, and a lot happening. And I'm sure that we'll find lots of things to talk about. But the thing that always really strikes me about these kinds of things is the like religious imagery around it and kind of the the Christian commitments that lead to it. So maybe I'll just pull that part out and then we can spin out some other threads here. Uh, the bit where um, Eric Martin is talking about like transfiguring the military runway into an altar. That's the same kind of thing that you get in this tradition of Catholic activism it often leads to the use of pretty jarring symbols. Um, for example, like famously Catholics will or and other Christians will, you know, pour either their blood or pig's blood all over nuclear warheads, which is a kind of like, you know, symbol of violence, but also calls to mind all kinds of other sacramental stuff about life being in the blood and so on. Um, if you read like trial transcripts of activists who are... Uh, 
you know, tried before a judge and have to kind of give an account for why they would trespass or do vandalism or whatever it might be. Um, they'll often also call to mind this kind of sacramental imagery of being like, I don't know, they're trying to transfigure a space that's dedicated to violence into a space that is expressing something about those Christian commitments. And I think to me, uh, there are some limitations to that, but it also is an, an incredibly powerful image and a really uh, interesting like prompt, I guess, for imaginative ways to engage in uh, fighting against things that seem kind of like like they're so big that you can't fight against them, <laughs> like militarism or you know nuclear b- arms or whatever it might be. So I don't know, Matt. What do you think? Uh, what do you make of this kind of story? Yeah, it's really interesting, and I don't know. It's like I'm not gonna like recommend that people do this, but also I think it's extremely courageous and a really um, I don't know, pretty inspiring expression of true faith of people who are really committed to the gospel, to Christianity and to justice. And I think that's really cool. <laughs> um, like you said, though, maybe there are limitations uh, to it all, but I would never, <laughs> I would never say anything else other than, than critical support for these folks. Uh, that, that bit you read there from that Sojourner's article though, is I think pretty powerful. And it reminded me a lot of, I, I we talked about this in the podcast kind of a while back. But there was an article in G's Magazine. Uh, we love G's Magazine. You should get it if you don't have it. Um, from Bill Wiley-Kellerman um, called Eucharistic Gunpoint. That's reflecting on his own plowshare actions. This is the the phrase plowshare is kind of like a, a loose, um, you know, reference of people who um, do these particular types of things. And uh and uh, Bill Wiley Kellerman, he and um, other sort of uh, people in his community, they they took a similar action, kind of um, not a, a similar action to this as the Dutch military, obviously in uh, before it though in, in the eighties. And I, I want to read this piece here. Uh, this is from the very end of the Bill Wiley Kellerman part. He says this: um, "The spirit does not abandon us. Halfway down the runway, we renewed our baptismal vows, looking toward the bombers while renouncing Satan and all of his works." At the open gate of the high security area, we spread the intercessory altar cloth, scattered vials of our own blood in the name of the Lamb, and partook Eucharist at gunpoint, surrounded by military vehicles. Christians feel, you know, extremely moved by um, the message of the gospel, and so much so that, like, they feel a strong dissonance in the world that they see and the um, the faith that they have, and they feel like this is the only thing that they can do. And I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's a really interesting expression of uh of christianity i guess that's the point that seems most interesting to me is that like this is it's for, it's certainly like an activist thing they're doing right they want nuclear disarmament they want uh end to you know particular wars and so on but also it's like an intensely religious thing that doesn't really make sense as just like an activist thing either it's it's kind of both at the same time and that it, it takes on both of those characteristics in such a strong way i think is really fascinating Yeah, I think so, too. And we've talked a lot on the show about does Christianity really offer anything unique to left wing movements? Is it kind of just like an add on or appendix or some ornamentation? And you could kind of like have it or not. And I think, you know, maybe in some cases that's true. Like, it doesn't really matter if you're a Christian or not, if you're engaged in some particular action. But I think in situations like this, it actually does matter in a way that's really compelling. Um, You know, I think about like, Uh, a handful of actions that have even happened just in the last few years. Um, You know, the, uh, the Kings Bay plowshares folks, for example, um, 
including uh, lots of radical Catholics, Catholic worker folks, and uh, a Jesuit priest and others. And I feel like it does kind of matter to be like, when these people get arrested and they go before the judge, you can't really point to them and be like, you know, look at all these, I don't know, like, kind of people who fall outside of the the range of, like, acceptable bourgeois, like, presentations of what people should look like or whatever. Like, it adds a kind of moral dimension to the, the action that's really unique. Because, um, like, it, I guess what I'm saying is, if you have a Jesuit priest there, for example, you can kind of mobilize a certain religious authority that you can't mobilize otherwise to be like, well, this person's whole life is organized around, like, figuring out what it means to be a Christian. And even though they're still going to send that person to prison, it kind of really highlights the contradiction in a way that's like harder to do if somebody is just like, uh, I don't know, like a more average kind of leftist or something like that. And I'm not saying that that's right, by the way, obviously. <laughs> it's like uh, a very silly thing. Um, and it, materially, you know, both people are going to go to jail. But I think it does kind of just create like just a different set of like, discourse around an action that is a, a unique contribution of Christianity. I mean, you know, it's like a, a challenge to say, well, these people are really Christian. They're trying to take their Christianity seriously. And that commits them to opposing weapons that could like blow up the planet. You know, that's like a, a unique angle that can get things like media attention differently. It uh, goes into court transcripts in ways that are pretty interesting and, and again, really compelling. And it also like connects with folks that maybe other kinds of activists or actions wouldn't connect with. So again, not to like stress the superiority of it, but I guess to pull out some of those unique tactical advantages of uh, highlighting that, that Christian origin. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just thinking of it as like, okay, I'm going to say something and it's going to sound bad and I don't mean it in a bad way, <laughs> but at a, at a certain level, these events also act as types of like, you know, public relations stunts, I think. Mm hmm. And that, like, again, I don't mean it in a bad way. Like, PR stunts is definitely something derogatory <laughs> that you could say about, about, act, like, uh, about activist sorts of things. But this is not exactly it, right? The, but like you're saying, like, the, um, the religiosity of the people doing it or that, you know, that pe the people who are kind of engaged in these actions are structuring their whole life around trying to live in a particular, like, moral way. It does um, lend a certain credibility to these actions in ways that maybe it wouldn't otherwise um, and it does elevate them in the discourse uh, higher than if you were just like, I don't know, rowdy teenagers or something. Not that there's anything wrong with rowdy teenagers, but <laughs> but the, uh, <laughs> the, the semiotics of the thing make a big difference, right? A person um, in a, a nun's habit or a collar uh, definitely gives the whole thing a different feel. And especially if you're like, you know, like in Bill Wiley Kellerman's case, if you broke into a military base and then you're like... <laughs> I don't know, praying or something. It's different than just uh, trying to achieve like a particular activist goal or something. Um, that being said though, like, you know, uh, these folks do go to jail and face like considerable retaliation against them. So it's not like this all ends well or something, but um, just because they have some kind of like moral armor. Um, I, I don't know, but uh, it is fascinating to see how that particular thing plays out um, media wise or just kind of in the larger discourse. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, well, maybe that's a, a good way to get into some of the history of this. And I think we've talked about this uh, at other times in the show, but maybe not in a super programmatic way. Maybe the most recent, I think, did we do a lock in episode on how to blow up a pipeline? Was that a regular episode? I can't remember anymore. 
But uh, yeah, I think it was a walk-in. Episode. Okay, that, that's probably the most recent <laughs> that we were talking about it. But um, you know, there's a long history of Christian um, action like this, and it certainly predates you know the 1960s and so on in many different ways. But I do think there's something really unique about what happens in the Catholic tradition in the United States in the 60s that kind of like creates uh, like a recognizable family of of actions, you know, where you could be like this thing that just happened in the Netherlands is kind of connected to uh, to these other sort of styles of uh, of action, direct action. And the the real sort of um, key for me, I guess, is the way that the uh, the Berrigan brothers um, sort of incarnate <laughs> this kind of action. And they're not the only ones. I think sometimes we tell the story of like Catholic direct action in a way that erases lots of other people and, you know, centers, uh, especially Daniel and Philip Berrigan, maybe a little too much. But nevertheless, those are the the points of reference. Um, but the Berrigans, if you've never heard of them, they're a couple of wild Catholic priests. They are brothers. They uh, engaged in lots of pretty radical action and lots of cool writing. And they were doing all kinds of interesting things in the 60s, 70s and onwards. Um, but the, the maybe most like famous case to me is, um, when they and other Catholics, uh, they broke into a draft, um, Vietnam draft office and stole a bunch of draft documents and burned them with homemade napalm in Catonsville, Maryland, which was a pretty big thing. You can look up a video of it. It is extremely like (laughs) very cool to watch. Um, they do this kind of like prayerful burning of the um of the draft documents and like there's lots of colors around there's it's just kind of like dripping with catholic symbolism it's it's actually a pretty haunting video if you look up uh catonsville berrigans or whatever on youtube i'm sure you'll probably find it um but this kind of scene of like catholics being willing to uh break in somewhere and then destroy property and nevertheless insist that this is like a non-violent action um, I think is the thing that really kicks off like a, a tradition of this kind of thing. And uh, Matt, I know you're researching a little bit about it um, ahead of this. Uh, do you want to maybe talk a little bit more about the the Berrigans and then maybe we can sort of think through how that tradition relates to uh, to things like direct action in general? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, I think you did a good job talking about the Berrigans. I think that's fine. Um, the Berrigans, interesting guys. Um, I don't know. Uh, they are like definitely up there though. Like people, people who are interested in leftist Christianity kind of stuff, you'll probably have heard about them already. Uh, I actually read this really interesting article before we talked uh, in Commonweal Magazine, another good magazine though. Um, I, um, yeah, it's good for sure. Uh, you can go read that one too <laughs> by Patrick Henry. <laughs> and uh, the article is called Peaceful Solidarity. And it's kind of outlining. Um, some of like the story about the Berrigans for sure, but also the interfaith connections with the, the Berrigans had with others, some Christians and some, um, not Christians. And I think that's really interesting too, to, I mean that, you know, the, 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 the Berrigans are interesting guys. The Catonsville nine is a whole very interesting thing that happened. And uh, like you said, the video is haunting, um, dripping with Catholic sim- symbolism. But I guess what I like about this article too, from Patrick Henry and Commonweal is that it does recognize that like the the movement behind the action is actually really important and um, that the interconnected, you know, nature of all these things is kind of oftentimes left out of the story. And I think that's interesting. 
Anyway, so I want to read this piece, this little bit from Patrick Henry's piece that kind of gets to maybe some of the like the complications or the tensions that are kind of tied up in the whole thing. And, and I, I, I like the, the messiness of it and, and kind of how it's more complicated than you'd expect. Although members of the interfaith anti-war movement worked together for a common goal, some disagreed with the Berrigan's methods. Abraham Joshua Heschel did not practice civil disobedience and thought that going to jail was a waste of time. Dorothy Day was a purely nonviolent protester who did not approve of the destruction of property, although she acknowledged the disproportion between burning paper and burning children with napalm. <laughs> Thank you, Dorothy Day. <laughs> she nevertheless maintained that these actions are not ours. Like Day, Thomas Merton espoused complete nonviolence. Merton's fear was that violence towards property might easily escalate to violence against people, and that in the long run, such actions might prove counterproductive. Yet, even as the Berrigans stood their ground on the issue of violence towards, quote, idolatrous things, maintaining that some property has no right to exist, their fellow activists nevertheless expressed their solidarity. Day attended every day of the trial of the Catonsville Nine. Heschel drove Daniel Berrigan and artist Tom Lewis to the Danbury Correctional Institute in Connecticut to meet Philip Berrigan when he was released from prison. Um, I like this piece of the puzzle because uh, in the tellings of these stories, you hear the cool stuff. You hear like the the interesting actions, but you don't hear like all the stuff that's kind of going on behind the scenes and even like the disagreements that people are having. Um, I think that there are, you know, in the like Christian activist imagination, I think that people group together, people like the Berrigans and Dorothy Day and all these people, right? And Thomas Merton, they're all just kind of like the cool progressive types of people interested in justice. But they are, but they they all do have like you know significant disagreements with one another over their tactics and the methods and like what's going on there, and that's really interesting too. Um, but even though even though they they have like these criticisms, I think of like what's going on here, um, <laughs> that they're still like they're still willing to show up for one another. I guess I like that piece of it too because um, you know when you when when people do these types of actions, uh, you don't consider the larger community standing behind them, and you don't necessarily consider like all of the complications that that might bring um and also like i guess to me that that seems like an interesting like part of the i don't know maybe the, the limitation of of the the type of action as well because for it to be really su successful like to to take that type of direct action uh, a non-violent uh direct action to you know whatever break into a military base or burn draft cards or, or whatever it is, it does require like some amount of social movement behind you to like support you when you go to jail, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, that, that seems like an maybe undiscussed part of the, the tactic that, uh, that you don't get so, so often. Yeah, I agree. It's, I mean, it's cool to see the, uh, the kind of shades of difference within the Catholic and Christian and interfaith um, nonviolent movement in the sixties. And to see that there's even debate over the definition of things like violence, does violence extend to property or not, all these kinds of things, um, really fascinating. But it is true that the key is having the social movement. I guess, to me, the question has always been how much of a social movement is there behind uh, an action or an event like these? Um, that's also something we talked about on the How to Blow Up a Pipeline episode. Um, you know, when you do a big, spectacular action like that, and when you have the courage to go to prison... I think that that is a great thing and should be applauded. And, you know, it's a, a really remarkable kind of uh, way to express a, a commitment to your moral values and to say something to the world and all that kind of stuff. So I would never be like, 
this is bad <laughs> or what they're doing is wrong. Um, but in the absence of a social movement that's capable of kind of absorbing the shock of an event like that, um, it's always a question of like how sustainable is the energy behind it or like how much does it accomplish in the long run? And I think it's uh, an open question for me, at least about what that tradition can do uh, in the absence of a, an organized anti-war movement. Like, it's an amazing thing and an incredible feat to be able to have 60 people go to a military base in the Netherlands at all. Like, that's amazing and, uh, again, should be super applauded. Um, but, you know, the anti-war movement in the United States is extremely weak, uh, not really able to, like, build on that kind of mass. And I guess the hope is that these kinds of events contribute to inspiring people to to get organized and join a, a movement like that. But it just strikes me as always such a clear kind of um, liability, maybe, that, you know, there's all this work and all this kind of uh, even, like, putting people's lives at risk. Um, and then in the end, it's kind of like, yeah, what do you what do you do uh, the day after <laughs> the day after the big spectacle? What do you do? <laughs> and I think that's the thing that like the Berrigans at least have never been able to like clarify for me in particular. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this is actually a really interesting thing um, that I've only recently learned about because I don't know <laughs> just what, just what happens. Um, but in Scotland where I live um, across the river from me is uh a naval base. This is not like classified information for sure. I heard about <laughs> it on a BBC podcast, so no big deal. Um, but there is a, a naval base with nuclear submarines, and uh, for like sixty something years, it's called Fastlane, the Fastlane uh, Peace Camp. There's just been like an ongoing encampment of people who have been protesting uh, nuclear weapons uh, at this base. And what's interesting about it. Well, I mean, there's a lot of interesting things about it for sure. Um, that it still exists, that people like have basically lived at this point their entire lives there is really fascinating. Um, but there is a social movement that's built up around this whole thing that have, have let people live there since like the 1960s. Um, but I guess the other thing is that it is like a, a movement kind of waning. Um, it's it's uh, there, there are people there, but it's it's at like a, a pretty considerable low. Um, which, I mean, you know, whatever, it's a hard thing to do and good for them for sticking it out and like kind of keeping keeping it all going. But I guess it's just like, even if you have a well-organized social movement that can contribute sort of like funds to let people continually protest a, uh, a site of, you know, nuclear weapons, it's just, there's no easy answer, <laughs> I guess is what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. You know, even one that's like, that's as long lasting as this one uh, in, in Scotland is still incredibly difficult to pull off. But, but requires like that type of social movement, you know, like something it has to have that to have the other piece. Yeah, I think that is also, though, a good sort of example of some of the uh, strategic questions around things like this, because like it is an amazing testament to people's ability to remain committed to something and even, you know, build out from maybe a, an occupation like that and so on. But it's like at the end of the day, the subs are still there, you know, like 60 years later. Yeah. And it's like an incredible human sacrifice to like give your life over to that cause. And it's not to say that like just because you don't win, you shouldn't do something like I don't think that. And I don't think we should measure every single action for justice that people do based on whether or not, you know, they get a tangible result within their lifetime or else none of us would ever do anything like, you know, I don't mean to put it so starkly, but I guess it's just a sort of. 
um, raise that question about like, what are the kinds of movements that we would need in theory to, you know, actually like <laughs> say no in a way that makes the no actionable um, for, you know, for a long time and, and an irreversible kind of way. And I guess that's what draws me to uh, other revolutionary traditions is I feel like those are the questions that are asked there that are maybe not asked in the same way in the kind of, at least the, the Christian tradition of it, you know, it strikes me too. Like it was interesting, uh, Matt, when you pulled out this stuff about the Berrigans having this ideological difference or strategic difference with some of the other folks in that orbit, Heschel and Day and Merton, uh, because it reminded me that, uh, you know, Berrigan also had this disagreement with Ernesto Cardinal and uh, Thomas Merton also had that disagreement with Cardinal and they also knew Cardinal <laughs> in Nicaragua. So uh, Cardinal is like somebody who's also in that like um, universe of Catholics thinking about like how to change the world and how to address injustice. But what I find so fascinating about Cardinal is that his answer to that ended up in, you know, a pretty different revolutionary situation and also led to some more structural criticisms and maybe even uh, a deeper investment in building the kind of community that you'd have to build in order to, like, take on a dictatorship in a country like Nicaragua. And in some ways, they're not comparable situations. You know, Nicaragua had, like, an active revolutionary movement that you could join, and the Berrigans, I mean, kind of did and kind of didn't <laughs> in the 60s and 70s. Uh, but I guess it's just, it's interesting to think through, like, what other um, moments of kind of connection and divergence you see in like Christian revolutionary traditions that, that meet up with these other uh, Christian examples of, of organizing. I don't think they're mutually exclusive, you know, like you mentioned Bill Wiley Kellerman, who I know also has had some history with um, solidarity in Nicaragua and so on. In fact, we have to have him on the podcast for sure. <laughs> I'm pretty sure we promised to do that like months ago and haven't gotten around to it, but uh, it's just to say that in terms of how we think about these things, um, that's kind of the thing that's always in the back of my mind is like, yeah, how do, how do we build the movement that lasts longer than the, you know, the, the Sojourners headline or kind of the, the next cycle of very cool, spectacular protests, but, you know, uh, does more than, more than that, or like connects the dots between them or something like that. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, maybe to round the conversation out just like a little bit, um, as I was thinking through some of this stuff, I mean, I've already kind of mentioned the, the PR piece of it, right? That. These are these are in some way stunts, right? They're spectacular. They're meant to grab your attention and like look a particular way. Um, and I think that's an important piece of it. And I, I guess I want to come back around to the idea and maybe figure out like what to do with it or or uh, or something. <laughs> Not exactly sure. Uh, <laughs> there's a book that I read years ago, and that's kind of stuck with me in a lot of different ways. Um, but it's a book called Shooting Hipsters. Um, and it's written by this woman named Christiana Spenz, and it's uh, it's published by Repeater Press, which is a very cool um, publishing house, so go look it up. It's really cheap. I think it's only like four or five bucks. Well, it was like five or six pounds, so who knows how much that is in USD. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do the conversion. Um, but what I like about the book is that it's um, kind of like a prolonged conversation or like uh, exposition on uh, the ways that protest is necessarily like embroiled in in media coverage and how that is good and bad but oftentimes people aren't like activists don't often think about that side of things as like you know if there's a protest like that is like you know in, in a certain way meant to be interacting with the media and um activists often 
just, you know, that's that's not why they think they're doing it. It's, it's a whole thing. But anyways, there's always a media element to it is what she's trying to say. So she uh, she has this whole book about it. And I think here's um, two, two ideas. Uh, this first bit I'm going to read here is from the beginning of the book. And then the second is from the very last part. But here it is. She writes that the action aims to put political ideas on center stage. And the action here, she, it can mean any kind of action, right? Whether you're protesting or like doing a march or going on strike or, you know, whatever. I mean, strike's a little bit different, I guess. But if you're, you know, having a, a protest march or you're having a die-in or you're blocking a highway or burning draft cards or whatever, right? These things. <laughs> you're trying to put political ideas center stage to win a part of the wider political spectacle and therefore to achieve attention for the cause. It's a publicity stunt and therefore a form of propaganda of the deed. This is a, a, a phrase that um, anarchists use quite a bit. And uh, usually it means something, you know, bad, <laughs> like like a political assassination or something. Um, but here what she's talking about is like, you know, you're you're putting you're, you're showing people where the rubber meets the road. Like you're um, you're out in the streets because you believe in democracy or something. Right. You you're you have masses assembled because you believe that the masses can you know, make some kind of more just world or something. So anyways, um, actions, whatever they look like, is a, they're publicity stunts and therefore a form of propaganda of the deed, just like violent acts that are dubbed terrorism or iconoclasm. Protest probably relies on the media more than terrorism because the deed itself is not generally as shocking or permanent. A march is transient. Placards are discarded and slogans forgotten far more so than a collapsed building broken masterpieces or ruined lives protest to have any effect usually needs to be recorded. Um, and I think that is a really important thing that's happening here. I mean, even in all of these, right, it has to be recorded. It has to have some kind of like, um, it has to have some kind of like media piece to it for it to kind of like stick. And um, I don't know, a piece that, that people rarely think about when they're kind of planning actions like this. And anyways, Throughout the book, uh, Spence kind of builds this argument that um, because political actions like protests and so on are always kind of like interfacing with the media in one way or the other, it, you know, it tends to kind of repeat stories um, that have, I think, like some limited options for them. You know, either you're trying to set up one group of people as the protagonists and the others as the antagonists or, or something else. And I think, like, what's frustrating about that for activists is that the media is not impartial. And I'm using that phrase maybe a little bit too loosely. But, like, you know, if um, the local news shows up to your protest or whatever it is, they're not going to necessarily cast you in the best light. Or if, you know, you're on strike even um, and and um, the news media shows up, they're not going to necessarily cast you in the best light unless you like take steps to make them <laughs> do so. And even then it's kind of questionable. Um, so anyways, she takes all these different examples throughout her, throughout this book and, and kind of just, just talks about like the difficulties I think of putting together um, like sort of dissident political opinions into more, more of these like, you know, publicity stunt kinds of events. Um, and she says, you know, it's just, it's difficult is basically what you get. And <laughs> in the end of the book, she concludes that um, what, what she thinks is, is worth doing is not repeating the same things um, that other people have done before you, not trying to like always, um, you know, capture the energy of, of marches or protests or actions past and do something maybe different. 
And she says that uh, she wishes to tell stories of substance rather than perform reruns of cliched pantomime shows where political actors play simply the villain or the martyr. And uh, she thinks that, you know, activists should really kind of think about the media as like a sort of sphere of activism in and of itself. And that like, that's a space where you have to tell a story. Um, All that to say, like, there's not like an easy answer to any of it for sure. Right. There's not like, well, you should just do this thing better or differently, but I guess what is interesting is that like that religious angle to direct action is kind of like a different way to tell that story that I think is really fascinating. Like, I don't know, somebody like Jessica Rosenchek is super fascinating because she's kind of has this like Catholic worker formation and she, you know, tried to slow down the construction of the Dakota access pipeline and, really concrete ways. And she did it, I mean, in her words, because the world that she was leaving to her kids to inherit is bad and unfit. And of course, that's like what you're going to do uh, or like what you you what you would fight for at least. Um, but the religious angle of the story makes it, I think, a lot more compelling. And it's not just like a, uh, <laughs> I don't know, it's not a media narrative that people know what to do with or like how to tell as a story in like a really concrete way. You know, like um, when it comes to crime or whatever, <laughs> I don't, I wouldn't say this is crime, but it's a, it's a whole nother story. Um, but when it comes to crime, like people are always trying to get away with it, right? Like the goal is to break the law and not get caught. But I think what's interesting in all of these um, examples and what makes them like interesting media narratives that kind of escape the orbit of like uh, the same repetitive thing over and over is that in all of these cases, like they all turn themselves in. They express, they express to some <laughs> extent like that. Yes, they did it. Like Jessica Resnicek, for example, she owned up to it in court. She admitted to it like on video. <laughs> it's like she she did it on purpose. And the same thing, too, for other types of other Christians who who are doing like direct action. And I, I think it's that's an interesting turn in it all, because it it isn't just the same thing over and over again. It's not like they're trying to get away with it or something. They're they're doing their actions out of conscience, like out of a particular type of like conscience. And they are owning up to it all. They're they're taking responsibility, um, something that the the people who are, uh, you know, uh, possessing nuclear weapons and spending lots of taxpayer money on them or. Uh, building ever more pipelines to uh, emit carbon, they would never own up to the crimes that they are actually committing. And uh, I don't know, an interesting turn. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the the strength and liability of these kinds of events is that they are they are mediatized events, and they do a good job actually. Like, you know, people do try to um, I don't know, like make fun of or criticize these kinds of actions. But on the whole, I feel like it's pretty hard to argue with the story of somebody who's like, I'm a Catholic person and I think that we shouldn't blow up other people. And that's why I put my life in harm's way and I didn't hurt anybody. And like, here I am admitting to that because I want people to like, think about it or do something about it or whatever, you know, like that's a hard story to like lampoon or even like rail against, even if you disagree with it. <laughs> like it's a, it's a story of like moral authenticity and moral consistency and coherence that just kind of makes sense on the face of it. And I think that that's the real strength is that you are, you are going to get uh positive coverage when you do get it, Um, you know, from all kinds of different sectors. It's like, even uh like, popular media sometimes gets an angle on these things like orange is the new black, you know, has this famous character of a, a religious sister who's imprisoned because of these different actions, right? Like 
it's a, a story that's really compelling and finds its way into popular media. And I guess the the big question after that is, again, always like, how does the story kind of take on legs beyond the media or how does it become more than just consuming media about the story? You know, like that's a, a kind of danger of consumer society in general and even like mediatized society is that all you have to do is kind of scroll past it and like it on Twitter to be like, yeah, I support that thing. And that's cool that these people did that. And that's kind of like scratching the itch, I guess, <laughs> of organizing. Uh, but it takes a lot more to to build those movements. And I guess to me, I, I don't mean to be like, oh, these things are at fault or like we shouldn't do them or people shouldn't do them. And I know better as like a guy who reads Karl Marx. Like I'm not trying to come off that way, but rather to say like in order to deliver on the openings that these things do actually open, we need to like build the bridges that connect them to each other and to other kinds of movements. And that's maybe the challenge that they really offer, at least to me, that isn't always so clear. Like the challenge is to be like, these people risk their lives to do something wild. And like, how do I maybe find a way to like draw a line between that and like some other, maybe even more boring thing that is not going to get media attention, <laughs> but it's really important or, you know, like some struggle that's happening in my backyard or whatever. Um, and I think that's the big question of the Christian left is like, how do we prepare the ground to receive those kinds of like revelatory moments? That's like the story of Christian life in general. And maybe the the politicized version of it is, you know, you have these like miraculous moments of protest. And then like, how do you integrate that into the the boring mundane parts of, uh, you know, building a real sustainable and lasting alternative to uh, to nuclear society or whatever it might be? Yeah. That's a good word. Well, cool. <laughs> I hopefully that has gotten people into like some kind of place on this topic that maybe you weren't <laughs> expecting after we read a bunch of Reddit questions to you. But uh, here we are now. Uh, we've come a long way from talking about coffee and vampires to uh, to this, but I'm glad we did it. It's a good thing we ate up all that time, if you ask me. <laughs> yeah, I think so, too. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what we do, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. If you support us at, uh, I think, $2 or more, you get an invite to our cool in, uh, cool behind-the-paywall uh, Discord channel, which has uh, lots of interesting conversations, lots of very smart people uh, talking about all kinds of things. And it's a great community of people to be a part of. Um, you also get early episodes uh, when we have an opportunity to release them early. And uh, sometimes we even do a kind of more funny-oriented uh, behind-the-paywall podcast called Blockin, where we do more Reddit kind of goofs and questions and current events and stuff so anyways uh, we appreciate your support you should support us so we we appreciate it i guess what i'm trying to say um our intro music is by mario armstrong our outro music is by the logical spoon and we'll see you next week i don't want to get up for church in the morning church in the morning souls alive Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church We'll meet down by the riverside There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam Between us and our Lord Jackson, you keep your hoods up You keep your hoods up And you stay up late Jackson, you keep your hoods up, where well, you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late.
don't mind a cold night, but might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early.